to another fantastic episode of Fraternity. I'm your big brother, Sean. And I'm your little brother, Danny. And we're here to bring you another movie today. Last week, we flipped the script and Danny shared his fond memories. And I did my best to share some fresh perspectives about the stepfather. This week, we'll be returning to the status quo a bit here. But we will be heading into a new decade. A decade we have not covered here yet. And I grew up in the 90s, and I think it's very easy to overlook and underappreciate your era of film. But over the past several years, I've done a bit of a reappraisal in regards to horror movies in the 90s, and I think it's a decade full of overlooked horror films that are definitely worth reevaluation. The movie we're covering tonight, I believe, is criminally underrated. So, Danny. Would you like to tell us all what movie we'll be covering tonight? We're going to be talking about Ravenous, a very criminally underrated movie. I agree. I had never heard of this movie until about a week ago (laughs) when we decided to do it. So, yeah, I'm really excited to talk about it. So I'm going to take a wild guess that this was a first time viewing for you. Yeah. And it's interesting you say how underrated this movie is because, you know, you have classic films, right? You know, things that are very acclaimed and popular. And then you have cult classics, you know, like stuff that got popular after the fact and has a very strong following today. But I feel like a movie like Ravenous kind of falls through the cracks and doesn't really fit in either category. And watching this movie, it just made me really excited and just reminded me of my love of film. There's always something to find. There's always something new that you just somehow slipped your mind and just never heard of. And this is one of those films. I really enjoyed watching it, I'll say right now. And yeah, it just reinforces my love of film. It's fine. You always think that you know everything and that you've seen it all until something just comes across your path and you're just blown away. And for me, that's what this movie did. Well said. And I just want to say that if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't seen Ravenous, You can go ahead and hit pause and go check it out immediately because I think you owe it to yourself. Yeah, this is one of the movies I would suggest going in completely blind. Don't even look up the actors. Just go find a way to watch Ravenous and just sit down and watch it. You'll enjoy all two hours of it, I assure you. (laughs) If you're at all, if your tastes are similar, even slightly to me and Sean, you'll enjoy this movie. And we'll be here waiting for you when you get done. So, Ravenous came out in 1999, and I want to say I was 14 or 15 at the time, and like a lot of 14 or 15-year-olds, I was kind of a adolescent douchebag dickhead. <laughs> you still are. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, I just lost the adolescent part, right? So, <laughs> mom and dad, you know, they they were big fans of movies. And they would often rent films from Blockbuster. And they would usually ask me if I wanted to watch a movie with them. I would stick my nose up at them. Be like, no, nah, I don't want to watch what you got. I was probably too busy watching (laughs) Evil Dead in my room for the 20th time or something like that. But one morning I woke up and you, mom and dad were out shopping. And I walked into the living room and I saw some rentals sitting on the table. And again, I would usually thumb my nose at anything mom and dad rented. 
But I decided to look at what these movies were, and one of the titles was Ravenous. And I really can't say why, but it spoke to me. Maybe it was the title, because I had never even heard this word before, and it just elicited an interest in me. So I put the tape in the VCR, and I watched the whole movie, and it blew me away. I enjoyed the hell out of this movie. It became an instant classic to me. And I remember when you all got home, I told mom and dad, y'all gotta watch Ravenous. And I watched it again with them right then and there. I watched it multiple times. I took it to my room and I watched it. I just couldn't get enough of it. And this movie left its mark on me. And there's just so much I love about it. And I'm so glad that we're here getting to share this experience and do this podcast about it now. It's so funny you you say like they came home and you wanted to share it with them because I felt the same way like I wanted to share it with my friends like during my second rewatch I I invited my friend to watch it with me and we watched it together and my third rewatch which I did today I just finished with my girlfriend and it's like I just want to show everyone this movie cuz I feel like it's just so unique and so interesting and like I said, I think if your tastes are any similar to mine or you like horror or it's just such a unique movie. I think there's just something to like in it for everybody. Definitely. Well, like I said, and you said, I can't wait to discuss it with you. So I'm ready to get into it when you are. And if you want to email us, we have an email. It's Fraternity at gmail.com. That's Fraternity at gmail.com. We have a Twitter. Follow us. Add us. Say hi. Our Twitter is Fraternity, that's at Fraternity, and we have a YouTube channel. You can go over to YouTube, type in Fraternity, you'll find that we're uploading previous episodes with a twist, with a visual twist. I implore you to check it out. It's really great stuff. You can subscribe to us over there, leave a like and comment, click the bell, all that great stuff. And if you like what you hear, you can leave us a review. Yeah, we really enjoy interacting with the horror community out there. We appreciate all the likes, all the retweets all the shares and please if you like us rate us because we want to keep spreading this and every like every share every retweet really helps so we immediately open with a Nietzsche quote and it says he that fights with monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster and then we get an audio thwang of an arrow and a howl as a second quote that reads, Eat Me appears, credited to Anonymous. And just those <laughs> quotes really sets the scene, doesn't it? It sets the scene. I think it sets the tone of the entire film here with these two quotes and this little bit of comedic timing here in this intro. Yeah, the year is 1847. It's during the Mexican-American War, and we're at a medal ceremony slash banquet for John Boyd, played by Guy Pierce. And we're being told of his cunning and heroism as a General Slauson pins a medal on him. And then after that, we witness the soldiers enjoying a steak meal at a long table. And Boyd looks down at the bloody meat on his plate, and you can tell he's becoming ill. Yeah, he's staring at this big hunking piece of steak on his plate. And the juices of the meat just look blood red, and it's making Boyd just feel sick to his stomach and he and he tries to power through it and take a bite but he ends up running off to the side of the table and vomiting <laughs> and we get a nice title card right as he pukes 
we also, while he was staring at his plate, saw a brief shot of him on a wagon just buried under a bunch of corpses and blood pouring down into his mouth. But we aren't really given much information or insight there yet. The dinner scene has definitely has some DNA of like a horror movie. Like it's very tense in the way the shots are cut together between Boyd's face and the steak. And yeah, you get that those shots of him out in out in the field that you aren't too sure how they connect yet. It's all really good stuff. After that, we learn from General Slauson that he thinks none too highly of Boyd. And despite the promotion they just gave him, he's shipping him off to California to a desolate base in the mountains called Fort Spencer. And so we see Boyd make this journey to the fort with this female Indian guide named Martha. And I love the set of Fort Spencer. And another great thing about this movie is it does take place in 1847. And so it's a period piece. And you don't get that too often in horror, especially 90s horror. Yeah, the setting is and time period is completely unique, and I really got to give a hats off to the set design and the costume design and hair and makeup because I feel like with a period piece, it's easy to make everything kind of look pristine and maybe like too accurate, but everything here in the film, like the costumes and Boyd himself and all the people that he meets, they just feel like real and lived in. And Fort Spencer, yeah, it's kind of run down and dirty and nasty yeah i just really like i just get sucked into this world when i'm watching this film yeah me too boyd gets shown to his quarters and it's just this rundown shack and the best item he gets is this nice thick blanket from martha and as he shuts his door he's confronted by his own reflection in this little dirty mirror and this is where we get another flashback to a battle And we see the Americans are overwhelmed and suffering heavy casualties all around Boyd. And we can hear men crying out his name as he stands frozen by fear. And we just see him drop down to his knees and he lays down in the dirt to play dead. So we learn here that Boyd is somewhat of a coward and gave up on his own men in the heat of battle. Yeah, it's going to be a very interesting character trait that pushes the narrative forward. And after that, we see Boyd meeting Colonel Hart, the walnut-loving head of operations at Fort Spencer. And Fort Spencer is basically a way station for westward travelers, but during the harsh winters, it's pretty isolated. And he's explaining how life is tedious and boring, and Boyd is now third in command. And we take a moment here to actually go over the personnel. So first, we have a private Toffler. And he's this stuttering, hymn-writing, religious devotee. Hart even calls him their personal emissary to the Lord. (laughs) Funny thing about Toffler, he's played by Jeremy Davies, I think his name is. And guess what? He was an actor in Lost. (laughs) So we keep making weird connections with Fraternity here. You know, we've got two movies with Lost cast members in a row. (laughs) Jeez, that's crazy. Next we have... Major Knox, and he's fairly irrelevant to the plot. He's just a drunk. I like they mentioned he was a veterinarian, so he plays doctor. And Hart tells Boyd, my suggestion to you is not get sick. (laughs) Then we have Private Reich, who's the, the badass, all about duty soldier. He's all about action and standing in freezing water naked. 
there's Martha and George, two Native American locals who stayed at the fort once the military took it over. And then lastly, we have Private Cleves, who is David Arquette playing a stoner David Arquette in a cannibal film in the 1800s, but somehow it works. <laughs> yeah, somehow it doesn't feel out of place at all. Some, this whole cast of characters is very colorful, and while they might be a little light on content or character, they're very likable, and yeah, they just feel like a big warm blanket in this film after a while, especially after rewatching it. Yeah, after the introductions, we see the whole group at dinner and Toffler tries to stutter through grace before the others just interrupt him and start eating. I also liked here that Colonel Hart asks, well, did anyone do anything today? And we did see Cleves and George smoking a peace pipe and they're just chuckling it up. The only people who did anything today were Cleves and George smoking the pipe. <laughs> the most that got done was drugs. <laughs> So after dinner, Boyd steps outside and he's looking out at the frozen expanse surrounding the fort. And this is where through voiceover and flashback, we learn exactly what happened and a lot about Boyd. I think it's an interesting character trait and a very interesting choice to make our main protagonist a coward. What do you think about that? Yeah, I really like that about Boyd a lot. And throughout the first half of this movie, almost the entirety of the movie, Boyd is kind of getting pulled through the movie by everybody else like all the outside sources and i think that's really interesting and that's a lot of risk to take by not having your main character kind of at the forefront of the plot but i think it totally works here and in the end it really just makes it all so much worth it the character of boyd and the journey that he goes through yeah he ends up being a really fantastic protagonist. Now, like we said, he did freeze on the battlefield and play dead while all the soldiers around him were killed. And his body was collected and placed on that wagon full of corpses. And he got taken behind enemy lines like that. And once there, he was unwittingly feasting on the blood of his compatriots. And he describes this change. Right, yeah, he just, something changed in him. Yeah, he found like a new ferocity and vigor and we see Boyd crawl out of the pit and he sneaks up on one of the Mexican soldiers and we get this great neck snap and then he single-handedly captures this base that had the Mexican army's command and it was all done through his cowardice and whatever's going on with this unwilling cannibalism. But General Slauson informs Boyd that they're going to promote him. They say they could kill him, but it would look bad due to him being a war hero. And then after that, we get a brief scene where Cleves and Martha are being sent on a supply run. And Colonel Hart walks in on Boyd looking at his medal in his shack. And when he asks Boyd what he got the medal for, he says, cowardice. Yeah, I think it's interesting that Boyd is even is admitting to his own cowardice. Like, he knows he's a coward, and he isn't trying to run away from the fact, but I think he feels guilty over it, you know, throughout the entire movie. My feeling is, 
I think everyone has to know something's a little off with him getting a promotion as a war hero and then being shipped off to Fort Spencer. Like, I think that really comes across with Reich because Reich kind of antagonizes him in this way where I think he knows your metal is bullshit <laughs> or why are you here? Right. So Hart invites Boyd to share a drink. And we've spent about as much time as we're going to setting up all these characters. And now it's time to introduce a conflict. And while sharing their drink, Boyd is startled by the appearance of a man outside the window. The unit quickly goes outside in search of this man. And they find an unconscious man and they take him inside to warm him up. And they leave Toffler there to pray over him until the next day when this man who we're going to learn is a man named Calhoun awakens. And then he proceeds to share this Donner Party-esque tale of what became of his fellow travelers and how he's arrived at the fort. On a trip with six westward travelers, under the guidance of a man named Colonel Ives, Calhoun and his party became stuck once their route became unmanageable. So they took shelter in a cave and fed on their animals before turning to cannibalism. And eventually this group dwindled down to Ives, Calhoun, and one of the Eaton men's wives. And Calhoun said he knew his days were numbered, so he fled the situation and just so happened to arrive at Fort Spencer days later. And in consideration for this woman that's still trapped out there in this cave, Hart tells the group of soldiers that it's their duty to go investigate this situation. Yeah, I really like when Hart's like, we got to go. It's our job. You know, we have to help out. We have to do things like this and save people. Yeah, I really love Calhoun's story and it's just so eerie and I love I love the music playing over it. And we haven't mentioned, but the soundtrack for this film is really great. It works so well for the film. It has this blend of like orchestral film score, but on the opposite end, it has this very kind of experimental sample-based kind of folk songs that are really interesting. And yeah, I really like the soundtrack. I love the soundtrack too. It's, I would consider it one of the greatest soundtracks of all time. And I think this soundtrack actually is more well-known and gets more praise than the movie itself, which it is a great soundtrack, but it's also a great movie. Yeah, I think it fits the movie really well and just amplifies the movie up. You know what I mean? Like a good soundtrack definitely can pull a lot of the weight in making a story feel really good and really memorable. With all due respect, it is no fraternity opening theme. And if you like the theme, you can listen to the full theme on YouTube at our YouTube channel. So check that out because you only get 30 seconds at the beginning and 15 seconds at the end. But if you want the full song, go check out that YouTube. Awesome. So before the men can set out for this cave, George approaches Hart and Boyd, and he starts to share this story of the Wendigo. And the explanation goes that when a man eats another man, he claims his strength, but his hunger becomes wanton and insatiable. And when Colonel Hart asks George if this is still in practice, George makes the point that the white man eats the body of Christ every Sunday. You know, I know that the Wendigo mythology is used multiple times in the world and realm of horror to varying degrees of success, and I think it works a bit here, but I also find this movie to be kind of 
like a vampire movie just with a cannibalistic twist more than a Wendigo movie. Yeah, I agree. I think I think this movie is a blend of a lot of different tropes and villain archetypes. Like, yeah, it definitely has that vampire tone to it. And it's a cannibal movie, of course. But I guess Wendigo just sounds a little more interesting than vampire. <laughs> yeah, or maybe fits the time period more because it was a Native American folklore. And yeah, once I did more research too into the Wendigo mythology, it does really line up with what's going on in this movie. So, but again, like I like to consider it more of a interesting take on vampirism than the Wendigo, but that's just me. Yeah. I mean, I don't know of any other Wendigo story, so you have to wait for my opinion on that until we watch more. <laughs> on the journey to the cave, we do get this moment on a mountaintop where Boyd takes the opportunity to question Calhoun about the experience of cannibalism. And he asks if after feasting on the man, Calhoun can recall any physical changes in strength or vigor. And Calhoun replies that he does remember something like that. Yeah, he definitely he says he remembers something like that, but he kind of gives him a non-answer in a way. Yeah, their conversation gets interrupted when Toffler finds a bone near the cliff edge and the rocks give way and he goes tumbling and Wright jumps into action and jumps down and he finds an injured Toffler and we cut to Knight in the tent and we see that Toffler has taken a pretty nasty puncture wound to the abdomen. We get the uh, bourbon now scene. <laughs> I'd very much appreciate some of that bourbon now. <laughs> Bourbon now! <laughs> Boyd? Boyd? <laughs> He's just like, Boyd, take care of him, please. Bourbon Get now is bourbon. the only time he doesn't stutter in this movie. <laughs> Jeremy Davies is convincing as a wimp, because in Lost he does play a stuttering character. <laughs> oh, jeez. And a musician, which is uh, another thing that Toffler is dabbling in, trying to be uh, make these religious uh, songs. <laughs> I like when Boyd brings the bourbon and you can tell he doesn't want to look at Toffler's wound and Reich sort of pokes at him here like, what's the matter, war hero? Afraid of the side of blood? Reich just doesn't take Boyd very seriously at this point. Like you said, he knows something's up and that if he was, if Boyd was the war hero that everyone says he is, then he wouldn't be so squeamish and be sent here at Fort Spencer. Speaking of squeamish, that night while everyone is sleeping in a tent, Toffler is startled awake. And he's frantic. And we see Calhoun cowering with bloody lips. And when the men inquire what Toffler is fretting about, he reveals that Calhoun was licking him on his wounds. He was licking me. He was licking me. Hart's like, what? <laughs> he was licking me. I like that uh, Calhoun, he's got this blood on his lip he looks like a kid with his hand in the cookie jar like i didn't eat the cookie <laughs> i didn't suck the blood <laughs> i like how much that reich has toffler's back or maybe he just is itching to kill somebody because he walks in at the sound of this and just pulls his knife on calhoun and hart has to calm the situation down and boyd hart and george confront calhoun outside calhoun explains all this away by saying he was having a nightmare and that when he awoke he found his lips on the wound and he asks to be restrained because he can't be trusted to earn their trust calhoun is willingly putting himself up to be 
tied up for the rest of the journey. Which, I mean, at that point, would you even have any more doubts if this man is so willing to go along with you and go on this dangerous trek through the wilderness and be tied up? Yeah, it's an interesting situation, and you could probably assume he would have some PTSD and night terrors after an event like that, right? Yeah, he's definitely suffering through some sort of trauma, so yeah, Calhoun is convincing here for sure. Yeah, he isn't tied up long either because the next day they get to the cave, and the closer they get to the cave, Calhoun just enters this crazy state of panic. Yeah, as soon as he saw the cave, he started to have a nervous breakdown, but they end up dragging him to the cave, basically, and Boyd and Wright go in to search for Colonel Ives, and Toffler, George, and Hart are outside, and Calhoun is kind of on the side of the cave, having this nervous breakdown this entire time and freaking out. Yeah, inside the cave, Boyd and Wright come across this hole that leads deeper in with a rope. And Reich enters the cave, and he's climbing down, while outside Calhoun's behavior is just becoming more and more deranged. And eventually he's going to start digging, and we learn here shortly that he has buried a knife here. And it's starting to appear that this has all been orchestrated, because once Reich reaches the lower part of the cave, he finds five skeletons. One skull still has hair and it looks to be female, and one skeleton has a military uniform right by it. So he thinks back on Calhoun's story, and Wright quickly realizes Calhoun killed everybody, and this is a trap. And as soon as we learn that, Calhoun takes a knife and stabs Hart and digs into Hart's chest, and it's just brutal. (laughs) Yeah, he even uses Hart as a human shield because George throws an axe down at him because George is posted up high and Hart takes this axe right into the back and <laughs> Calhoun draws Hart's gun and puts one in George and George is dead. Yeah, I really love the buildup for this entire scene, this entire moment, you know, when they're at the cave and it's the moment in the film when it does a complete 180 and everything you thought you knew about the film is now different. and. It's a bit of a whiplash for sure, but I really love it. And the music is great. It's really tense. It's scary. You have no idea what's going to be right around that dark corner. And then, yeah, the reveal of Calhoun being the man to set the trap and trap all these men here is just awesome. Calhoun goes from shivering and scared to this force of nature that is now must be dealt with. Yeah, he drops all pretense here. And I like when he pulls his knife out of Toffler, he just says, run. (laughs) (laughs) And Toffler obliges and he takes off and they're running across this stream and Boyd and Reich emerge from the cave and they find Hart just twitching in death's arms, basically. Yeah, and and Boyd's trying to save Hart here, but Reich tells him, like, there's nothing you can do. He's dead. We got to go save Toffler. You can see Boyd is scared at, you know, everything that's going on, but Wright kind of pulls him into this chase. Yeah, he basically has to drag him along, and they have a game of cat and mouse in the woods until they come across the gutted corpse of Toffler, and Reich is dead set on killing Calhoun. And 
the two men end up on this cliff's edge searching for Calhoun and Boyd's cowardice is really surfacing here because he tells Reich, Reich, I'm, I'm going to turn back. Boyd tells Reich, like, yeah, I, I'm going to go back. And Reich puts his gun up to Boyd's face and says, we got to find this dude and kill him. Yeah, puts his gun in the face of his uh, superior. <laughs> Another thing I forgot to say about this entire scene, when Calhoun is freaking out, I feel like you could also take that as him really freaking out because he's to make this entire plan it probably it took a couple days of work to get up here and it's not like he could feast on anyone while he was with the group so in a way he kind of was freaking out not of his own accord you know not all of this was planned but yeah i really like this uh this entire chase here yeah calhoun pops out of nowhere and just throws his knife into reich and reich ends up tumbling down the cliff because Again, just to set the scene, we are on this really high cliff edge, and Boyd fires around into Calhoun's shoulder, and Calhoun falls, and Boyd spends a moment calling out to Reich, and then Calhoun sits up, and he has Boyd cornered, and I know that Boyd is a coward, but it has to take something to make this leap of faith he does, right? <laughs> well, I was going to ask, do you think he throwing, do you think Boyd throwing himself off the cliff is cowardice or courageous or is it a mix of both? Well, I don't want to get too into it yet, but I do want to discuss like where his cowardice comes from. And clearly here, he's not afraid of heights, but he is afraid of confrontation. And Right. So he chooses to just leap away from the danger, but totally risk his own life in doing so. Yeah, definitely. And it's like, he just shot this man in the shoulder and watched him get up as if nothing happened. So he's probably has no idea what to do. But also, like, did he think he was going to survive this fall? I mean, it was just a stroke of luck that even the trees kind of broke his fall down this mountain <laughs> right it was very lucky well he's alive right we see him tumbling down the hill once he makes his landing and he even slams into the body of reich and they both go tumbling <laughs> <laughs> and they they end up falling into this pit and this pit is hidden from view due to a, a tree has fallen over it and boyd falls in and Reich falls in, but is, gets caught in the vines and is hanging upside down. And before dying, he suddenly, like, attacks Boyd and starts choking him. <laughs> yeah, I'm not too sure why Reich is choking him. I think he was probably mad that he just jumped off the cliff <laughs> and didn't finish the job. <laughs> nice bubbling spittle blood coming out of Reich. We see Calhoun looking over the cliff. and. He realizes just how deep of a fall it really was. And I like, too, that it's Calhoun is powerful. Obviously, he gets power from eating people. But I don't think he could make this fall, make this jump and survive. You know, even he's like, shit, I guess I got to climb this mountain and find this dude now. <laughs> yeah, I loved when Boyd did make the jump. You could see in Calhoun's eyes, he was like, what the hell? You know? <laughs> So what do you think he yeah. thought when Boyd made this jump? It's definitely surprising. It's obviously not what he expected. <laughs> so in a way, yeah, it, it does take courage to just 
take that leap of faith. It definitely t- it takes something. <laughs> <laughs> so so Boyd is down in his hole, and Calhoun can't find him. And we see that one of Boyd's legs is broken, and the bone is even sticking out of the skin. And Ugh, it's, it's gross. Yeah, there's some good sound design here too, and it's it really makes you feel it. <laughs> yeah, he attempts to snap the bone back into place, and you just hear this crunching and crackling, and Boyd is biting on this twig to to get through the pain. Oh <laughs> yeah, that was rough. And we're gonna get a few shots here of Calhoun eating the victims and dragging them into the caves. And we're also gonna spend a few days down in this hole with Boyd and watch as his desperation grows. We also get a brief scene where we see that Cleves and Martha are back at the fort and they have no idea what happened. They're just kinda wondering where everybody else is, but it's here in this pit where I wanted to discuss Boyd's cowardice a little more. Yeah, totally. This is here in the pit is definitely a point of change for Boyd's character. Right. We know Boyd is a coward, but again, my question is what is Boyd actually afraid of? And I think he was clearly more fearful of confrontation than taking the leap off the cliff, but I believe Boyd's cowardice arises from a general fear of death. Yeah, I would agree too that he is afraid of dying and that's why he just stopped in his tracks during the battle and played dead because he is afraid of that confrontation and he is afraid of not coming out on the other end of it right and that's why he runs away here he's he's afraid of calhoun he doesn't want to die but here in the pit you know he's stuck by himself and he really has to make the decision right here and now that will forever change the course of his life yeah all of his actions are cowardly, but their grand design is a preservation of life. Like, he's a coward driven by survival instinct. And we're going to see here that, again, once this fear of death creeps in, he is going to resort to cannibalism. Yeah, and he feels bad for Reich. He's sitting there like, what does he say? Like, you're safe now, you're safe now. And then he takes his knife and cuts off a piece of Reich and... We see Boyd emerge from this pit finally after an unknown amount of time, a few days at least, at most a week, and he makes his trek back to Fort Spencer. Cleves discovers Boyd when he returns. He's like, Martha, it's Boyd! (laughs) And he gets... Boyd! (laughs) He gets Boyd back to his quarters, and we see Knox tending to Boyd's wounds and checking the progress of his healing leg. And we then see Boyd awaken from a nightmare, and Boyd looks like absolute shit here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that I mean, that's an understatement. He's just, uh, all the color is just gone from his face. Got scars all over him. He's cold. He's shivering. <laughs> Yeah, he ends up going into Martha's teepee, and he finds the illustrations of the Wendigo. And we've already kind of discussed the Wendigo, but I thought I'd discuss it a little more here because, like I said, I was never too familiar with it. But again, my point is, I think that it's a very similar tale to vampirism. You know, it creates a need or a hunger to feast on the flesh of others, much like how a vampire must drink the blood of humans. And 
the people inflicted by this Windiggy, they <laughs> gain superhuman strength and recuperative abilities, obviously, like a vampire, right? Right, yeah. It creates this endless cycle of killing, and there is no way to stop it. There is no alternate path for this lifestyle. The only way to end it is to end your life, to give yourself, you know, to die. And that's what Martha tells Boyd, is that the only way to end the Wendigo is to kill yourself, basically. Yeah. Another trope of a vampire tale, too, is the uninvited guest, you know, where you invite the vampire in. And I thought we got that a little bit with Calhoun, you know, which soldiers didn't really have a choice. They had to take him in. And much like vampires, cannibals have to operate in the shadows. But yeah, you said it. Martha tells him the only way to beat it is to give yourself because it's just a take, take, take cycle. And the only way to stop it is to starve it by eliminating any need. So we also see that General Slauson has arrived with a crew and we see them discuss with Boyd the fact that they were unable to find any evidence to corroborate his story up in the mountains. They found the cave, but no bodies, no blood, nothing to support Boyd's claims. And we know General Slauson already doesn't like Boyd, and they're kind of imploring him to just change his story. Because there is an issue with the missing unit, but they're trying to tell him, just say you got lost, you got separated, and we don't know what happened to these guys. Yeah, he says, like, if you change your story now, it will not be perceived as changing it It, you know we'll just say you were delirious and boyd still says like you know i'm mentally aware i was aware then and i'm aware now like uh, everything i'm saying is the truth he's so not willing to tell a lie here but it ends up getting him in trouble yeah and now we're gonna take another fantastic swerve because a new colonel arrives doesn't he that's right a new colonel is here and it's colonel ives (laughs) but it's someone we've seen before right yep calhoun has either adopted the identity or is revealing his true identity here as colonel ives and as soon as boyd sees him he collapses in fear and slauson is like what the hell is the matter with you boyd and he tells him it's calhoun sir that's calhoun and he tells slauson to let knox take a look at him because knox was there yeah, Knox, he was drinking, and the day that Calhoun was there, the day that they left to go on their rescue mission, Knox really didn't get a good look at Calhoun. All he can remember is he had a beard. I do recall the man wore a beard. He says he was sick, but Boyd quickly strikes back that you were drunk. <laughs> and then Knox says that in Boyd's story, he shot this Calhoun in the shoulder and if ives is to be calhoun then clearly he would have some sort of shoulder wound right one would assume right (laughs) so general slauson politely asks ives to take his shirt off and show his shoulder and he shows one shoulder and it's very tense and he shows the other shoulder and we see there are no wounds on general ives which just makes boyd look crazy and out of his mind at this point Like, no one believes his story. Yeah, Ives even asks, is there anything wrong? And Slauson says, 
Not with you. (laughs) (laughs) After that, we get this scene where Cleves and Martha are discussing Boyd in the kitchen. And Cleves is telling Martha that Boyd said that Ives killed everybody. But Cleves at this point, too, thinks that Boyd gone loco. (laughs) And he tells Martha, I think Boyd's the reason no one came back. And, of course, Boyd walks in and overhears this. And I like he tells both of them, I've got to warn y'all. And they're like, okay. And he's like, consider yourselves warned. And takes this big knife from Cleves. (laughs) They don't even try to stop him. They're just like... Crazy ass Boyd, just let him do his thing, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, next up, we see them all at dinner, and Knox asks Ives about the fact that he doesn't eat meat, and Ives replies, I can never forget it was a living creature. (laughs) (laughs) And I like Knox says, sentimental fella. (laughs) And then Ives prods Boyd and asks him if he doesn't eat meat either because he hasn't eaten and I like Boyd's snap set of, like, only as a last resort. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting here because you can tell that Ives knows that Boyd knows and he doesn't care. Like, there's there's no pretense here. Like, he's fooled everybody except Boyd and they're just waiting for a confrontation. <laughs> right, yeah. Ives is the one in power here and he knows that no one believes Boyd or... Yeah, he's just basically waiting for Boyd to make a stupid move. We then get this odd scene where Boyd is standing at his window watching Cleves working outside. And we see Boyd attack Cleves from behind with this large wooden mallet. And when Cleves falls, he stabs Cleves in the stomach and starts tearing him open. And he starts eating his flesh as Cleves is laughing while spitting blood. (laughs) But then we see that this scene is just a dream, or a daydream rather, that Boyd is having. It's just here to state just how badly the urges have gotten for Boyd. He's just so close to giving in to those urges to eat human flesh, but he's doing his damnedest not to. That night, the group is all lounging in the main cabin. Cleves and Knox are playing chess. Knox is cheating. (laughs) You got Ives reading a book. Martha's knitting or something. And Boyd is just sitting in a chair, starting to doze off. And Ives slams his book shut. And Boyd just jumps up and draws his knife. But Martha draws a knife also and aims it at Boyd. And we just see the tension spilling over here. Ives even comments and says, you know, it looks like some of us could use some rest. Yeah, but they're not going to bed yet because Boyd and Ives meet outside and it's time for a villain monologue, isn't it? it, Yeah, it's about that time. We're going to get a very (laughs) revealing story from Ives because Ives reveals that he was dying of tuberculosis when he heard the tale of the Wendigo from an Indian scout and he took it upon himself to eat the scout and find out. As one would do, right? Yeah, I mean, who wouldn't test that theory? (laughs) You gotta know if it's real. I guess he had nothing left to lose, right? Yeah, and he's suffering from tuberculosis, but he also says he was suffering from depression. So Ives really had everything against him. Yeah, but after eating the Indian Scout, he was miraculously healed of his ailments. 
not only healed, but stronger than he had been before. Yeah, better than ever. And we learned that he did eat the group in the cave, and he feels wonderful. And I like Boyd asks him if he ate the woman, and he's like, as a matter of fact. (laughs) (laughs) You're disgusting. Yeah, Ives' problem is he knows Boyd has tasted the flesh. He knows Boyd knows what he knows, but Boyd is rejecting it, and he he can't comprehend why. Ives represents kind of in a similar fashion to Boyd that, like, self-preservation. And, you know, as different as these characters are, there's also some similarities between the two. And, yeah, Ives can't understand why Boyd won't just give in, and he knows how good it felt when he ate Reich and how he regained all his power and how quickly he healed. But Boyd says, it's wrong. And Ives responds with, ah, morality, the last bastion of a coward. Yeah, I love that line. This really gets under Boyd's skin, and he strikes Ives with the knife, and it cuts Ives' hand open, and it's bleeding. And then Ives just taunts Boyd with this blood, you know? He knows how badly Boyd just wants to eat. Everything that Boyd throws at Ives, Ives just throws it back in his face. Yeah, Boyd is getting overwhelmed by the blood, and Ives is, like, describing the feelings that Boyd is experiencing, and he's like, I don't have to tell you, you're feeling it right now. And he goes to walk away, and Boyd goes to kill Ives, but yet again, Martha steps in, and Knox walks out and sees, like, a triple neck slashing about to happen. (laughs) And he's drunk, and he's like, What's going on out here? And he basically... I'm putting you under arrest, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he tells Boyd he's putting him under arrest, but then proceeds to tell Martha, Martha, go find Cleves and put Boyd under arrest. (laughs) (laughs) You just just cannot take Knox away from that bourbon, can you? (laughs) No. It's going to leave him in the pink. (laughs) (laughs) So Martha can't find Cleves, though. And she's looking all over. And she even tells Knox that she can't find Cleves. Yeah, Martha tells Knox that she can't find Cleves. And then Knox says, did you check outside? And Martha responds, no. And then Knox says, well, check outside, woman. <laughs> so check outside, Martha does. And she wanders into the horse stable. And she finds all the horses dead. And these horses are killed in pretty gruesome ways, huh? Yeah, it looks like some of their... Heads have been cut off, but are still hanging by their reins. It's a really gruesome sight. Martha runs back and taps on the window and tries to get Knox's attention, trying to tell him that all the horses were killed. And then some blood starts to drip on Martha. And Knox sees this and is just dumbfounded and goes outside to check. Both of them look on the roof and see that Cleves has been killed. Yeah, right after that, I like how Knox confronts Boyd. And he knocks him to the ground. He says, that was for Cleves. And then he goes, and this is for my horse. And just delivers a knockout uppercut. (laughs) (laughs) So the next day, without the luxury of horses, the men decide to send Martha on a journey to fetch the general. And we see that Boyd has been placed under arrest. He's basically been chained to a wall in a bedroom. And Ives is preparing a stew as Knox notices his sword is missing. And he asks Ives if Ives needs any help with the stew. And Ives tells him he may be able to contribute. 
He sure will, huh? <laughs> I like Knox. He's like, you just let me know. And Boyd keeps calling out to Knox here because he wants to confirm that Knox is still alive. And then he starts asking Ives how he did it. Like, when did he kill the horses and Cleves? And this sets Knox into a rage who runs up into Boyd's face like, you be quiet about the horses and Cleves or I'll put your ass out again. But as this happens, we see a mysterious figure pass through the foreground and we know that someone else is here and it isn't Ives. So Knox shuts Boyd's door and walks back into the kitchen and he sees this unseen person and gets his head cut off. And eventually, Boyd is sitting in the room wondering what's going on, and the door opens. And who is it, Danny? Why, it's Colonel Hart. (laughs) Yeah, Colonel Hart is alive because Ives fed him his own unit and brought him from the brink. And we even see Ives dragging Knox's headless corpse out into the yard saying, I told you my regiment had certain curative abilities. Boyd asks Hart if they're going to kill him. And Hart says no, that, you know, they need all the friends they can get. It's lonely being a cannibal. And he kind of explains to him what happened back there and how he was close to death and fell asleep, but woke up to Ives feeding him. And that they're basically trying to get turn Fort Spencer into this cannibal home, basically. (laughs) They all walk outside while Ives is carving up Knox, and it's at this point where we get into this discussion about Manifest Destiny, because this movie does take place right at the cusp of westward expansion, and we have the Wendigo mythology, we have this idea of insatiable hunger and greed, and it's funny because the Wendigo mythology and what's going on in this movie can be interpreted as a critique on Manifest Destiny. You know, that push westward that just consumed everything. The U.S. taking over all, all of this continent, you know? Right, and just kept taking more and more, and they, nothing could stop them, basically. We get a second villain monologue here, basically, and yeah, this is where... Ives is talking about Manifest Destiny and kind of their plan as they won't kill indiscriminately. They'll, they don't want to break up families. They'll probably kill, you know, loners and singles as they pass through the Fort Spencer. And Ives tells Boyd that he wants them to join, that he wants them to be a part of this, but Boyd just refuses. Yeah, after the discussion, Boyd's reluctance and the notion that he tells them People aren't stupid. You'll eventually get caught. Ives has had enough and he stabs Boyd and he inflicts a mortal wound on him. That's not going to kill him immediately, but it's going to make him have to make a choice. Yeah, it won't be fatal if he takes the necessary precautions, which at this point we all know what Boyd has to do to survive. Yeah, we're going to see the men at dinner enjoying the stew of Knox and... Boyd is sitting there bleeding out and he has a choice because they have put a plate in front of him and Ives even delivers a Ben Franklin quote, eat to live, don't live to eat. Yeah, it's really interesting how badly 
Boyd really wants to do the right thing, but he's always pushed in these uncomfortable circumstances where he has to make a choice that he doesn't necessarily want to make. But in the end, it's all for this greater good. And Boyd eats the stew, but we know he has a plan. We know he hasn't fully joined the cannibal side yet. Right. That fear of death creeped in again, but also the realization that if I die, there's no one left to stop them. Exactly, yeah. Boyd is only eating to serve this greater purpose and take care of Ives and Hart here. He knows what he has to do. The next day, Colonel Hart visits Boyd, who is still chained up in his quarters, and we see that Boyd is healing quickly, and we also see Ives walk up a ladder into this watchtower, and we can see that Martha is returning with General Slauson and his right-hand man. We get a funny quip here where he calls them breakfast, lunch, and reinforcements. <laughs> Hart and Boyd go to Hart's office, and we see a demonstration of Hart's new strength because he just crushes the walnut shell with his hands, whereas before he needed a big book to crush the walnuts. Yeah, I really love that touch there with the walnuts, him just crushing in his hand, displaying that, yes, these Wendigos do get more powerful when they eat. But Boyd is going to exploit Hart's humanity because he's an unwitting Wendigo as well. And he isn't fully committed to this vampire-esque lifestyle. And he does end up releasing Boyd under one condition. He tells Boyd, you've got to kill me first because I can't live like this. Yeah, Boyd basically has to remind Hart of his own humanity and you know, reminds him about the deaths of Reich and Cleves and Knox and Toffler. And, you know, clearly this gets under Hart's skin as he says, like, stop, stop. I don't want to hear it. Like, we have to kill to live. We have to do this. This is what, you know, we're destined to do. But Boyd has, you know, he's above that. He wants Hart to see, like, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to give in to these urges. And I just think it's really awesome to finally see Boyd like really acting on what he truly believes and not giving into that cowardice anymore. Yeah, and fair play to Hart because, you know, he doesn't fall into the trap either. He finds his humanity and the only way out is through death. And he tells Boyd, just kill me. Yeah. When I first watched this scene, I was like, that was a bit like quick of a turn. You know, Hart's turn from... It is abrupt. (laughs) But... I think it works, you know, after watching it, because I do think like Colonel Hart is a really caring guy. Like clearly he wanted Boyd to feel welcome when he first introduced him to Fort Spencer. And clearly he cares about all those people that ended up losing their lives that were at stationed at Fort Spencer. So I think it works with Hart's character as this kind of caretaker and number one at the fort. So on rewatch, I was like, you know what? It makes sense for his character. I wasn't too bothered by the, the quick turn here. Yeah, I like it too. And it's time to get to our grand finale too. So Boyd slashes Hart's throat just as Ives is approaching. And Ives can see the blood just splatter across the window. And he goes and looks in there and man, Hart is leaking. <laughs> He's aptly named because there is a giant pool of blood forming as blood just gushes from his neck yeah i like he gives this kind of last look right at ives before he falls down and dies 
Yeah, I like that too. And Ives goes inside to confront Boyd, and Boyd draws one of Nox's swords. And we get a brief struggle here, but Ives ends up retreating back outside, and Boyd is no longer afraid, and he's charging into danger because he goes to search for Ives. And we get some really awesome, like, subliminal single frame shots spliced in here of Ives standing in front of a fire, and he's drawn a cross on his forehead with blood. Boyd is finally going headfirst into danger. And yeah, I really love those uh, splices of uh, Ives with the cross of blood on his forehead. Really awesome. And the fire. Yeah, and Ives has a really awesome outfit on too that further pushes my feelings of this movie being like a vampire film with a cannibalistic twist. Because all the men, except, well, Hart and Ives have dropped their uniforms and they have just started wearing whatever they want. And it's a really cool maroon colored suit. Yeah, and just the way he conducts himself while he's parading as Colonel Ives, you know, it just has that like Dracula <laughs> hospitality to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's something off about him, but he's also very nice when Knox or Martha are are in the presence of him. Definitely. So Boyd searches the barn and Ives isn't in there, but he notices this huge bear trap and it's a nice bit of foreshadowing. But Boyd ends up walking into another area of Fort Spencer and Ives gets to jump on him and he comes crashing down from the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, and then this crash through the ceiling starts a quite brutal and a quite sloppy fight i mean these two men are just trading blows that would cripple any normal man like 10 times over you know we've got boyd just taking this pitchfork and like stabbing ives in the chest with it and then boyd gets some stab wounds of his own like these guys are really going at it logs smashing into faces and rib cages <laughs> a hatchet into the forearm yeah they're tearing each other apart it reminds me of the the fight from they live <laughs> <laughs> yeah a little bit yeah it is kind of like that isn't it like it's not overly theatric it's very like just two guys bludgeoning each other <laughs> yeah there's one part where they even trade headbutts <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i like too there's one part where boyd takes a log and like smashes Ives right in the face with it and you see he looks almost knocked out and just drops. <laughs> yeah, he's he's got blood all over his face and he looks lightheaded after that one. <laughs> yeah, they both start... But still, Sean, these are Wendigos and they are not taken down by simple stab wounds and head trauma. <laughs> yeah, they have two stamina bars. <laughs> They they end up wrestling on the ground, and Calhoun shoves this dagger right into Boyd's back. Oh, it's nasty. You even hear him, like, scream and recoil in pain. Oh, uh, yeah, it's, like, right on the spine, too. Like, you just know that hurt. And this one causes Boyd to walk away a little bit. But as soon as he walks away, the shack falls like the roof of the shack or whatever falls on top of Ives. Yeah, because when he walks away, he stumbles into the support beam and just causes a collapse, a structural collapse right on top of Ives. And we see <laughs> Ives dig himself out. 
and he goes to the barn where Boyd has retreated, and we see this bloody and damaged Ives approach Boyd in that feral state that we saw him in at the caves. So he grabs Boyd, and he pulls the knife out of his back, and I'm not quite sure what he was going to do here, because he drops the knife, and they're both just right in each other's face. I almost thought he was about to bite his face off or something. <laughs> Maybe he's a little delirious, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's a bit weird, but they're both a little... They're both kind of hugging each other here. <laughs> yeah, they're like grappling, but not forcefully. And then Boyd does begin to push Ives, and he knocks him down into the bear trap. He set up the huge bear trap, and both of them fall into it, and... Boyd uses Ives' head to trigger the trap, and it just clamps down on both of them. You knew it was coming with this bear trap, but it's just awesome to see, nonetheless. And just the fact that both of them are stuck in there together. Ives says, that was really sneaky. (laughs) (laughs) And I just want to know, how big are these fucking bears? (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? Jeez. We get a great line here where both men are clearly dying, but Ives tells Boyd, you know, if you die first, I'm definitely going to eat you. But the question is, if I die first, what are you going to do? And that is the question, because we've seen Boyd give in to that, those urges before, but Boyd is the hero here. And soon we see Ives is losing consciousness and saying, eat or die, eat or die. And then finally, Ives exhales his last breath and dies. And we just see Boyd here, just like this sense of relief on his face is just really great. (laughs) Yeah. And at the same time, Martha and the general had arrived and Martha opens the barn door and she sees Ives and boyd locked together in this trap and you see boyd kind of just exhale and lay down to go to sleep and martha hightails it out of there she's just leaving the fort behind (laughs) and our last shot is of boyd and ives laying together in death and that's the end of our movie such a fitting final shot for this film these two rivals here together in death just awesome all right man you said you like this movie so i take it you just really like this movie like me huh (laughs) (laughs) no i love this movie man like i feel like i like it every more every time i watch it and i'm gonna say something and you just gotta hear me out okay okay but this movie feels very like anime to me (laughs) interesting and you know i have to ask myself like what do i mean when i say that it feels anime and i feel like anime in general like rides that line of being like comedic and cornball and weird but also takes itself seriously you know you take something like dragon ball and it has that comedy but it also has you know plenty of serious moments too and i think this movie rides that exact line and it rides it perfectly like it just hits a home run for me where there are plenty of funny moments in the film and it's got this comedic tone to it but it also has that horror It has that Wendigo or vampire tone to it, and it just works so well. It's so unique. And with anime, too, you know, you have that colorful cast of characters, and you have that very, like, strong setting, and you have 
your your hero and your villain and they're kind of rivals they're opposites but they're so similar and you know in the end you have the hero making the ultimate sacrifice and winning the battle not by sheer strength but willing the willingness to end his own life to end this villain and it's just such a unique movie i can't state it enough like you just have to see it to understand what we're even talking about here i just really like it yeah that's interesting man i would have uh never really thought of that but i can definitely see your point well all right man so do you have a favorite kill yeah my favorite kill i gotta go with boyd and ives dying together because i really like the character of boyd and i really like colonel ives or calhoun whatever you want to call him as a villain and i think he's plays it great throughout the whole movie he's scary but he's also charming you know he's got all those aspects of a villain that just work so well and seeing them die together and even in death ives is like mocking boyd like you know the question is are you gonna eat me i love the track playing during this whole scene and it's just such a fitting ending for a movie you know it ends with boyd finally doing what he has to and willing to give up his life even though he's been so scared to give it up in all these other times and it's just fantastic i i can't think of anything better to end this movie with i 100 percent agree with everything you just said and ives and boyd dying together is my favorite kill also and i'll just go ahead and say my favorite scene is the final slugfest between the two. <laughs> and that's interesting. Well, I just, I remember when I was young, I remember when I was a teenager and I saw this movie when mom and dad rented it, there were plenty of times where I just, I loved the whole movie, but I would want to watch through the whole movie just to get to that final scene <laughs> and just enjoy him beating the hell out of each other. <laughs> it's a great fight. Like, I really love it. Like, it's just a slugfest. Like I said, if you've seen They Live, you know what I'm talking about in that movie. That fight scene just goes on and on. And so does this one as they just take an in- inhuman amount of punishment. Yeah, I even thought it was longer. I mean, it's a good length, but when I was young, it felt longer to me. But uh, yeah, once they're in the bear trap and... Ives, when he finally does expire, just gives this great death rattle of all the oxygen leaving his lungs. And right when he dies, like, great death acting, because he's just frozen, eyes wide open. And I like the difference there where there's nothing pretty about Ives in death. He's laying there covered in blood with his eyes wide open and... Boyd almost just lays his head down to take a nap, but (laughs) we know he's not long for this world either. Yeah. So you had a different scene. Yeah, there are a a lot of scenes that were contenders for uh, my favorite scene, and it was really hard to pick a favorite, and I'm sure it'll change, you know, (laughs) as the years go on. I'm sure right as we hit stop on the recording, I'll be like, shit, maybe it's this one. There are a lot of great scenes. But for now, my favorite scene is, I guess, the Manifest Destiny scene. I guess starting there and all the way up to when Boyd finally eats the human stew. Interesting choice. I just love, you know, how badly Boyd resists here. 
and how, you know, these are three cannibals here. He's showing the most humanity out of all of them. And I just love how Ives and Hart are just like eating the stew and being jolly. And then you just cut to Boyd and he's just literally bleeding out and spitting up blood. (laughs) And it takes all the courage in the world for him not to eat that stew. But finally he gives in. Boyd eats the stew not for selfish reasons. He eats the stew to be a hero and to make sure these cannibals can do no more harm on innocent people. And that's just a true hero to me. And I really love Boyd as a character. I love his journey. And to me, this is like the culmination of the entire film. Him finally making that choice to go with it and to kill Ives. Awesome. So that was Ravenous. We hope this podcast has left you craving and wanting for more. And I just want to say that we are entering the holiday season. Next week, we will be releasing a new episode on Black Friday. We'll all be in the throes of Thanksgiving hangovers. And we just hope we can offer you a bit of audio respite during these crazy times. Yeah, when you're fat and happy and stuffed with turkey and pumpkin pie, put on an episode of Fraternity and we'll put you right at home. Nothing beats a cannibal movie when you're stuffing your face. I gotta say, that stew was looking kind of good, don't you think? No comment. (laughs) Good night, everybody. See you next time.